At 17, my days at the most memorable job of my life began at 5.45 a.m. Downstairs in the changing room. The basement of Rumpel's restaurant in Boston was ill-lit. It smelled of the air that gets pushed in front of subway trains. <laughs> the morning I punched my first time card, a bulbous rat sneered at me as it ran along the pipes that lined the dank concrete walls. Every shift started with a feeling of vulnerability. Down to my underwear in an eerie cavern, slipping into the plain white snap-button uniform of the kitchen staff. I was a kid from the suburbs, sharing menial restaurant duties with a bunch of teenagers who usually reported for work after pulling all-nighters, roaming the streets of Hyde Park, abusing either drugs or anybody they deemed as an other. Tommy was part of the kitchen boy gang, but you could tell he was one of the good kids. The other kitchen boys made it clear that he hung back and didn't join in when they let off steam. I, too, would always catch him standing apart from them as I stood there pre-soaking a tray of dirty salad bowls before shoving them into the industrial dishwasher. His wide eyes told you that he knew right from wrong, but that it wasn't enough to make him risk losing the only friends he had. Tommy was, aside from our demographic differences, a lot like me. And the me at that time was finally back in Boston. For the first part of my young life, my family's corner grocery store was a short bus ride from the city, allowing me and my junior high school friends to take the tea into Harvard Square and buy Jay Giles band records at the Coop and Sergeant Fury comic books at Out of Town News. On to Boston Common and the Public Gardens, sneaking into R-rated movies and passing such interesting personages as winos, later stage hippies, and even same-sex couples making out on park benches. It was life thrumming around us and we ate it up. But then it all ended. After 13 years as the youngest of seven kids who all went through the same school system and worked in a hugely popular family business, dad retired and took us all to the far, far suburbs, the kind of place you had to cross a bridge to get to. Nowheresville. I went from everything I had ever needed to nothing I had ever wanted. So I was anxious to get back to the city that promised me so much before the move, but all I could do was sit and stew and plot my return. Finally, I got into art college, left buried resentments high school in the dust, and got back to where I belonged. Which, it turned out, was the brazenly health code violating Fenway Park adjacent restaurant known as Rumples. <laughs> its atmosphere seemed to spring from the monstrous id of a two-bit grifter in a paperback novel. <laughs> Perfect. On game nights, it was packed like a Tokyo subway. Me and the kitchen boys could not hope to keep up with the mountainous bus buckets of dishes that got flung at us during a Red Sox homestand. My dishwashing busboy coworkers. They were about a year younger than me. They all had E names. Bobby, Ricky, Stevie, Tommy. <laughs> they left me alone. Sensing that I was in but not of them, and happily handed me raw material for my life. Nonetheless, they honored me with an E name to welcome me to the fraternity. Jimmy. <laughs> On a Saturday at dawn, the boys rolled up in a 73 Buick. 
One of them was unconscious from drug use. The boys fetched an empty five-gallon bucket from the back entrance, filled it with ice cubes, and lobbed the entire thing at their non-compass mentis friend. I shivered just watching it, but it did nothing to wake him. By the time his eyelids fluttered open, the whole debacle had cost them too much time and they clocked in late, which meant they had kept Danny, the manager, waiting. Very bad idea. Danny backed each one of them in turn against the giant steel refrigerator and slapped them repeatedly across the face. Don't you fuck with me! <laughs> I stood there slack-jawed, knowing that as the outsider, I would be left alone, but the kitchen boys, they didn't fight it. Not at all. It had the creepy feeling of a ritual. And Danny... He was the one who had hired me. A tiny, wiry fellow of indeterminate age, he had stringy blonde hair and a pronounced lack of pigmentation brought on by Irish pallor and drug use. But I wasn't the only outsider he left alone. Benny, the short order cook, would have handed Danny's shit right back to him. Benny was bound for Princeton in the fall, forced into a dues-paying job at Rumpel's by his father, the food and beverage buyer, whose payoffs to the health inspector, Benny claimed, were the only reason Rumpel's was still here. I did not doubt that claim, since I had personally witnessed the kitchen boys flatten ground beef into patties by throwing it against the ceiling. <laughs> Benny's private slogan for our workplace was, Rumpel's, the wrong place to be if you're hungry. <laughs> Non-game nights were deathly quiet. One such night, Benny beckoned me out front, pointing at the 1080, the leather bar across Boylston Street, and the line of people waiting to get in. It was Danny's day off, and there he was, our manager, in full biker from the village people regalia, including a studded collar. And the underage kids he was sneaking in with him? Stevie and Ricky, two of the kitchen boys. Over several weeks, Benny dared and coaxed the two boys into spilling more and more of the beans, which they did with a great show of reluctance, followed by a kind of conspiratorial glee. There were descriptions of Danny's black light bachelor pad and none too subtle hints about the S&M debauchery that went on there. We filled in more blanks when Danny stumbled in late, paler than normal, and a few convenient moments later, the same two kitchen boys crept in looking similarly pale and sneaking off to the changing room to do some coke. Danny joined them and, in fact, treated them as sweetly as can be for the rest of the day, no backhanding in sight. It was all starting to make me nervous. At art school parties, I witnessed excesses, but they were more sporadic, accomplished briefly by sneaking substances onto fire escapes or sneaking bodies onto beds full of winter coats. Nothing as unsettling as enmeshed as what was happening at my job. I had been at Rumpel's for three months, and my quest for a seamy underbelly was paying off beyond my wildest expectations. <laughs> but things were getting weird. Something else was creeping in. The feeling that there was something wrong with finding it all so interesting. Sunday morning. I arrived in the kitchen before anyone else. The wall phone rang. I answered. Tommy's mother. She thought I was Danny and launched right in, pleading, 
the tears evident from her sniffling speech. Tommy's going to be a little late. He, he's on his way in. Please, please don't fire him. I'm out of work, and his little brother is sick, and Tommy's the only one working. Please don't fire him. Please don't fire him. I told her I wasn't the manager and that I would cover for Tommy, which I did. But the pain in Tommy's mother's voice didn't feel like raw material. It was just raw. I had rushed up to Boston hoping to make up for something I lost, but the anguish of Tommy's mother called me out. My mother would not have had to make such a call on my behalf. I had gone looking for some imaginary grit in the lives of people that had been deprived of much more than me, deprived of almost everything, but were still smart enough to know from the start that I was in and not of. So I quit, and it was over, and I don't know what became of Tommy. I only know what became of me because of the low-down, dirty job we shared. After that job, I would no longer seek the safety of being a casual observer. I would live my own story, my own life, and I would find some rawness and ugliness in it too, but never quite like what I witnessed as the untouched outsider around the corner from Fenway Park. In the words of the Cars, one of Boston's favorite bands, I guess it was just what I needed. So here's to you, Rumples, beautiful, ugly, unpleasant, memorable, and truly the wrong place to be if you're hungry. Yeah.